As I record this episode, we are in the midst of what the Christian Church calls Holy Week. It's the week that leads up to the arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. To be honest, the question of why did Jesus die has haunted me for quite a long time. The thing I thought I knew so well was breaking down for me. I remember the first time I really began to freak out about it. I had to preach a sermon on the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know the one where God tells Abraham to take his only son up on a mountain and slit his throat as a sacrifice to God? That story? I hate that story. I remember being in the preacher's meeting that we had once a month to plan the next series and so on, and I kept saying, I really don't want to preach this. It makes no sense to me at all. It seemed like at best it was like this really bad joke, or at worst it was one of the most horrible tests that supposedly a loving, gracious God whose mercies endure forever could ever ask of a person. When I read commentaries about it, they say that this is a picture of what God did when he sacrificed Jesus in our place. I did my best with the sermon, but it began to haunt me, especially at Easter when I had to explain why Jesus died. So for much of my life, I thought I knew exactly why Jesus died, because someone had to pay the price for my sin. And not just for the bad things I had done, but for my absolute depravity as a son of Adam. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, I was separated from God. God couldn't even look at me. My sin was so horrible. It was a matter of justice. See, God is perfect and just, and so justice has to be served. But God did this amazing thing and sent Jesus as a stand-in for me because hey, somebody had to die so that justice could be served. Blood had to be spilled. And hey, better off somebody else's than mine, right? I learned pretty quickly that the reason that Jesus died, as it was explained to me, is called the penal substitutionary atonement theory. Wait a minute, it's a theory? Nobody ever told me it was a theory, alongside quite a number of other theories, actually. I was told that this is absolute biblical truth, but now they call it a theory. So for a number of years, I've spent time looking at the different theories as to what happened and why. And I'll be honest, it is all quite confusing because every theory has its own proof text passages as to why that theory is right. I'd read one theory and say, oh, that's it. Then I'd read another one, and that made perfect sense as well. And sometimes I would just get very confused. So I had this great idea to do a podcast just before Easter about the cross and why Jesus died. As I've gotten into this, I realized that I had bitten off more than I could chew, but there's no going back now. So here is my big disclaimer. I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Well, maybe it's not that bad, but as I wrote this at times, it felt like I was really in the woods. 
And as I stumbled around, I actually realized that I wasn't the only one in the woods. I wasn't the, in fact, I don't think anybody knows what they're talking about on this subject. So here is my best attempt at this point in history to answer the question, why did Jesus die? Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Let's begin by taking a few minutes to walk through the more popular of those theories. Theologians call them atonement theories. The oldest theory of atonement that we know of is called the ransom theory. It comes from a theologian who lived just a couple hundred years after Jesus. You might be surprised that our penal substitutionary atonement theory is only about 500 years old. In spite of what you've been told, it's not what the church has always believed. In fact, it might even surprise you that the first century church, the church right after Jesus, didn't actually have an atonement theory. But I digress. Let me get back to the ransom theory. If you have ever read or watched C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have seen the ransom theory laid out beautifully. In the story, Edmund, who was one of the sons of Adam, was a traitor. He had been turned by the wicked witch who represented the devil. And then according to the law of God, this witch could actually execute Edmund. But the lion Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in the story, volunteers himself to pay that that is owed to the witch. Aslan's death paid the ransom that was owed to the devil, in other words. That's the ransom theory, and the church held to this view for more than a thousand years. Apparently, C.S. Lewis did as well. Then around the year 1100, a theologian by the name of St. Aslam challenged the ransom theory. According to Aslam, it didn't make sense that God would owe the devil anything. So his theory was that because of our sin, we owed God. God's honor had been violated by us, and so we owed God a huge debt that we couldn't pay. We had to restore the honor of God, which we could never do. And so Jesus died as a ransom paid to God for us, to restore us to God. It's here that you begin to see the first glimpses of substitutionary atonement. Around that same time, a theologian by the name of Peter Abelard came up with what is known as the moral influence theory. It was popular before the Reformation, but the reformers seemed to drown it all out, although it seems to me that it's made a real insurgence with many popular and liberal theologians. 
This theory varies significantly from the others because nobody owes God anything. God doesn't need Jesus' death in order to forgive sin. Forgiveness is part of God's character. Jesus dies to demonstrate God's love toward us, to show us a better way to live, to show us that love can overcome hatred, that forgiveness is stronger than violence. They would say that the cross doesn't save us from God, but rather it shows us who God really is. The cross doesn't change God's mind about us, rather it changes our minds about God. If, if you'd like to read more about this theory, check out Brian Zane's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Brian has been an advocate for nonviolence in our world, and he lays out a beautiful argument that the cross is God showing us the way of nonviolence as opposed to the violence of the empire. It's a fantastic book that I would highly recommend. Another popular theory out there is called Christus Victor. It was popularized by a Swedish theologian in the early 1900s. I first heard a pastor and author by the name of Greg Boyd speak about this when he was a guest at Mars Hill in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've spoken about Greg before. He is a great author to read if you want to explore the Christus Victor theory. According to this theory, Jesus' death was about defeating principalities and powers, first and foremost. If I understand it correctly, Jesus didn't die as a substitute in our place. Jesus died to free us from the power of sin and death. Christ is victorious. Such a beautiful image. There are more theories out there, of course, and there are all kinds of theories around the theories and mixtures of the theories and different nuances within the theories. In fact, I would be willing to guess that if you got 10 different Christian theologians together, you would have 10 different views as to why Jesus died. And that's the point that I'm trying to get at. We only have theories. We don't really know. There is so much more mystery around all of this than we have ever been taught. So much more complexity. And frankly, I think so much more beauty. I think it's because our modern minds have such a hard time thinking in metaphors. I feel like if we thought of all these things that the Bible says as metaphors rather than concrete ideas, we would be much better off. Pictures instead of theories. Images rather than absolutes. Jesus taught like this all the time. People would ask him a question and he would say, well, it's like there was once this farmer. And he would paint a picture 
because words could not explain the concept. A picture was much better. Maybe when it comes to why Jesus died, pictures are better than words. In fact, let me go out on a limb here. I'm wondering if you looked at all the atonement theories as metaphors rather than absolute truth, if you might have a better idea of why Jesus died. Recently, I read a book by Marcus Borg called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. This book challenged pretty much everything I saw and understood about Jesus, but in many ways, it did exactly what the title promised. I saw Jesus in ways I never had before in a lifetime of reading and studying and worshiping and preaching. I was deeply impacted by this book. Borg outlines what he considers to be the three main narratives, or what he calls macro stories in the Jewish scriptures. All of these stories point to Jesus, and I would suggest they all give us a different metaphor that help us to see what that first Good Friday might have been about. They're the stories of the Exodus, the exile, and what he calls the priestly story, which is the, the temple and the sacrificial system. There's a picture painted in the story of the Exodus of a God that looks on his people, on those that are oppressed with deep compassion. The people are in bondage. They are slaves to the empire of Egypt. The chances of that changing in the next thousand years or so seems quite unlikely, actually impossible. But God does the impossible. The oppressed are freed from the tyranny of the empire. And not only that, they are led through the desert to a new land, a land of promise, a land that is not led by an empire, but by God. A land not only of opportunity, but of justice and compassion. It's this Exodus narrative that is the backbone of much of liberation theology. There are at least three different metaphors in this story of the Exodus that I think are important to look at. The first is the one I just described. It's a picture of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus' death ushers in the end of the empire that is controlled by power and violence and replaces it with the kingdom of peace and compassion and justice. It's the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke so much about. But the second metaphor has to do with the way that we think the way we see ourselves. For 40 years in the desert, God attempted to help these people see themselves differently. Not to see themselves as an enslaved people, but rather people that are free, people that are chosen, people that are loved. But these people never actually figured that out. 
By the time they got to the land of promise, they decided they wanted a king like all the other nations had. They just traded one empire for another. But clearly, the death of Jesus helps us to understand who we are in Christ and to see ourselves differently. I believe that was one of the Apostle Paul's clearest messages. He said, I preach Christ and him crucified. It was the core of Paul's message. We have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. Paul says, so live like free people. Paul said transformation happens by the renewing of our minds, by seeing ourselves differently in the light of the cross. And we see that in this metaphor of the Exodus. One more metaphor that we see in this story is that of journey. Going from slave to free isn't really a one-off event. Again, think of this as a metaphor, not an absolute. Salvation is like a journey. It's a journey across the Red Sea, through the desert, then across the Jordan River and beyond. It's a journey filled with struggle and difficulty, but it's led by a God who is real and present and engaged in the process. The second macro story that Borg suggests is that of the exile. King Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem in the late 6th century, destroyed the city and the temple, and took the best and the brightest of the Jewish people into captivity in Babylon. The exile lasted about 70 years, according to the prophet Jeremiah, when under Cyrus the Great, the people were allowed to return to Jerusalem, where they rebuilt the city and the walls and the temple. In this exile story, you once again see a picture of journey. And once again, it's a journey that is not complete without struggle and hardship. But let's talk for a minute about why this journey happened in the first place, because that's a very different thing than the Exodus story. If you take the Old Testament literally, it seems that this was God's punishment on the people because of their sin. The wrath of God was so great that God sent Nebuchadnezzar to invade and destroy the city and take the people captive. Seventy years of exile was the price they paid for their sin. Personally, I disagree with that view on a number of fronts, and we don't have time to really dig into those now, but let me just say a couple of brief things. For those that take the Bible literally, I've never heard them explain how God's punishment is actually dished out. I was always told that if I didn't accept Jesus, then I would burn in hell for all eternity. Seventy years of exile seems like a small price to pay compared with eternity, 
Why didn't they get off so easy? 70 years, come on. Or how about the story where King David counted the people and God was really angry and so God punished him by killing 70,000 other people. It seems like if God was truly immutable, which means that he never changes, he would be much more consistent with the way punishment is dished out. I love Brad Jerzak's view of wrath that you can read in his book called A More Christ-Like God. He says that the wrath of God is actually a metaphor because metaphor is really the only way we can talk about God. And he goes to great lengths to explain that when the Bible is speaking of wrath, it is actually speaking of the fact that there are consequences to sin. Consequences in the real world for going our own way, for giving in to our own desires, for greed, or for what some people call our ego. God doesn't inflict punishment on us, but there are consequences to our actions. I've heard some people say it this way, sin is its own punishment. There are also consequences to nations and systems that resist God's call to compassion and justice. This metaphor of the exile reminds us that sin is not just individual, but it's also systemic. Systemic sin has consequences just like personal sin does. God calls the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, to justice, to righteousness, to compassion, but they refuse and the consequences are that they end up in exile. So when this story is seen as a metaphor, there is no need for God to punish sin. There is no anger that sends the people into exile. God hasn't turned his back on the people because of their sin. Instead, actually, the opposite is true. God journeys with them in the exile. Listen to this well-known passage from the prophet Isaiah that was written to the people when they were in exile. He writes these words, Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This, my friends, is not the picture of an angry God or God who is forced to turn his back because he can't look at sin. This seems to me like a God who is already forgiven and is with us even while we suffer the consequence of our sin. Another picture I see in this metaphor is of a God who calls us home. Not after we've cleaned up our act or even promised 
to clean up our act or even promise to try to clean up our act. But it just calls us home. No strings attached. There is nothing in this story of God telling the Jewish people, okay, now you have learned your lesson, you can come home. There seems to be no repentance at all in this picture from the people of Israel. God just says, I'm inviting you home. In this metaphor, the cross isn't the place where Jesus takes our sin so we can go home. The cross is where Jesus says, I am with you and you were welcome home all along. It is so beautifully illustrated in the story of the prodigal son. The son distanced himself from the father, but the opposite was never true. The father was waiting for the son to come home the entire time. This story gives us this beautiful metaphor of the cross that invites us home. Okay, one more macro story from the Jewish scriptures that points to Jesus and gives us this picture of maybe why he died. It's what Borg calls the priestly story or the story of the temple and the sacrificial system. It's not a story that's grounded in a historical event, but rather it's an institution of ancient Israel. It takes us to a very different image of the cross, that of sin, guilt, sacrifice, forgiveness. I think there are some very beautiful parts of this metaphor, but when we take them as supreme, as absolute truth, everything else put aside, then the metaphor begins to get us into trouble. Because of my background, it seems that I have sat through thousands of verses of the old hymn, Just As I Am. It was the hymn that was sung at pretty much every altar call in every evangelistic meeting, and I went to a lot of those. There's some beautiful truths in those lyrics. Not every verse, mind you, but the idea of the song that says, I come to God just as I am. I don't have anything amazing to stand on. Parts of me are quite broken, actually, but I come. The message of this metaphor, this priestly story, is just that. You can come even if you don't have any grounds to stand on, even if you're broken, even if you're failed. None of that really matters. There's a picture of love and grace that if we only had the first two metaphors, we might somehow miss. This picture tells us that new beginnings are possible, that we can actually put the past in our past. We are not defined by our failure or our sin or anything else that would make us less than. We are defined by the fact that we are created in the image of God and we are seen as children of God. But there are problems when we make this priestly story supreme, make it absolute truth, 
which I think is exactly what the modern evangelical church has done. According to that theology, the cross is entirely a legal transaction. Those other things are nice, you know, freedom from bondage and all that. That's great. And yes, the New Testament does speak about that, but all of that takes a back seat because this is a legal transaction. Let me, let me just share with you some of the trouble that I see in that. This metaphor, when made supreme, makes God primarily a lawgiver and a judge. There are these requirements that we can't meet. So God provided a sacrifice in our place. So God will forgive you if you accept that Jesus was the sacrifice, but he won't forgive you if you don't accept that. Basically, I've traded one set of requirements, the law and the sacrifices of the law, for another set of requirements. Suddenly, grace is thrown out the window. We also lose the fact that the cross invites us into a journey, both a personal journey and a shared journey as a community. When made supreme, the cross is like a done deal, transaction closed. In fact, by making this metaphor absolute and supreme, Christianity has dumbed down the theology of the cross to the point where it's only about where we end up after we die. It's about heaven or hell. One thief on the cross next to Jesus went to heaven, the other went to hell. Now the choice is up to me, which do I want? And that is the theology of the cross. Another problem that we come away with when this becomes supreme is this, this idea that sin is only personal. Sin can't be systemic. I believe that so much of the struggle with racism within our Christian world stems from exactly that. We dumb down the message of the cross so that it only has anything to do with me, not the systems we create. How tragic. I would also say, that in order to make this metaphor supreme, some things have been added that are not actually there. The biggest one is this idea of total depravity. This idea that all humanity is fallen, is sinful, is totally depraved. It's like we needed to create this problem so that God could solve it. So in my opinion, we made up this idea that God has to punish sin and he has to punish us because of what Adam and Eve did. Some would say it's because of God's wrath. Others would say it's a matter of justice. But follow me on this. If total depravity is true, then it does make this metaphor of the temple and sacrifice seem like it's supreme and absolute. But I don't buy that. I just don't see it. Yes, we screw up. And yes, we are probably quite sinful. But that does not mean that we are inherently evil and separated from God. It doesn't mean, as we have been taught, that God can't look on sin and that we are completely cut off from God. We might feel 
separated from God, but we aren't. I want to try to wrap this up. I've been going on for a long time. So let me, let me do that by helping us to see the similarities in all three of these stories. In all of them, we feel like we have been separated from God, either by slavery, by exile, or by failure and shame. We feel like we have been separated from God. And in all of them, in spite of how we feel, God is there. We are not actually separated from God. God is there leading us through the wilderness. God is there inviting us home. God is there covering our shame and our guilt. And all of these messages bring great hope. The Exodus story speaks of liberation from oppression, both individually and systemically. The exile story is about a God who is with us in the exile and invites us home. The priestly story affirms that we are not defined by what we have done. But most importantly, all of them speak to a God who loves us more than we could ever know. Whatever happened on that first Good Friday, and whatever the reason was that Jesus actually died, this is what I know. It was for love. A love deeper and greater than anything I could have ever comprehended or anything I could ever understand. A God who wants to take my slavery, my bondage, my addiction, and free me from it. A God who desires to bring me home from exile. A God who says that you are not who you think you are. You are not defined by your past and your failure. It's a love that can never be expressed in a theory or even in a story or a song or a piece of art. It's a love that can never be described, only experienced. Have a great Easter. Shalom.